Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, I want to welcome World Series of Poker champion Sam Greenwood from Canada to The Grid. Sam has been really successful both online and live. He's got over $21 million in live earnings, and he's also a very popular coach at Run It Once. I actually had him in mind for The Grid ever since he wrote a passionate Twitter takedown of the idea that the advance of poker theory is making the game dry and robotic. But before we get into all that, Sam has a dramatic hand for us from the Triton Million, where he held King-10 suited. Sam, welcome to The Grid. Hi, uh, good to be here. So, you know, of course I wanted to give you aces um, to relive the trauma yet again from the uh, WSOP where you got your aces cracked, but um, Jamie had already taken them. Yeah, I figured um, looking at The Grid that aces, like I could have guessed what the, the hand that will gone quickly and i figured aces and two seven would have been uh, two of the quickest gone and it makes sense that jamie and maria took them <laughs> yeah they're, pre- they're pretty pretty smart women so of course they want to go in there and get like the most iconic hands so their episodes get listened to again and again yeah exactly but for you um this king 10 suited hand can you set it up for us um where and when did this happen and why was it such a pivotal hand sure it was in the uh trident million that happened uh, in july 2019 it was on pretty early on day two. The blinds were uh, 10K, 25K with the 25K ante. I raised the low jack to 60K with King 10 of spades. Martin Cabral three bet the cutoff to 200K. Uh, I called with King 10 suited. The flop was Queen 10 7 rainbow. I had um, a backdoor. It was, I think, Queen of spades, 10 of hearts, 7 of diamonds. I had spades. I checked Mountain bet 175,000 into 460,000. I called the turn with the ace of spades. It went check, check. The river is uh, an offsuit seven. And I bet, I turned my hand to do a bluff and I bet 700,000 into 810,000. And since it was live streamed, Mountain folded and we saw he folded King Queen off. Let's get into this hand because there was a lot of drama also on the tables, a lot of table chat as well. But to start with the strategic elements of the hand, um, take us through the the flop and pre-flop. Was everything there standard? Did you have any interesting decision points? Well, I I think this is kind of one of the interesting things about the hand and sort of what I was talking about, about the Twitter thread you referenced earlier. Well, to me, pre-flop I knew was pretty standard. Even before kind of solve poker, I would have played pre-flop correctly. Here I wouldn't have open-folded. I would have, wouldn't have turned my hand into a bluff by four-bet in pre-flop, and I wouldn't have folded to the three-bet. So calling here was pretty simple, and then I wouldn't have led the flop. I think even back in like 2006, everyone was pretty good at checking to the pre-flop aggressor. One of the things that was interesting when I was looking at the hand on the flop is, one, if I gave Mauden a variety of different bet sizes on the flop, so in the actual hand, he bet 38% pot. If I gave him a variety of bet sizes, one, he rarely picked a size this big. He mostly just bet 20% pot. And two, my hand, King-10 with a backdoor flush draw, was almost um, was a small bet, but was 20% of the pot. I raised pretty close to 100% of the time, and then I called off for a shove. I think the idea is that I call off, and when I check-rate the flop with King-10, he shoves aces-kings, ace-queen, but then also king-jack and ace-king sometimes, and I'm doing pretty well 
without range, and then it can fold out a lot of his ill or equity or, or make him put money in, maybe sometimes get him to fold jacks. So I thought my flop line of just check calling the bet was pretty standard. And then when I looked it up, I saw that actually I'm supposed to raise a huge percent of the time, which... Wait a second. Yeah. Are, are you saying that you're, you're supposed to check raise if he bets a little bit smaller, like 20% instead of 38%? Well, if, if he bets... 20% he's supposed to, I'm supposed to raise like 100% of the time. And if he bets 38%, I'm supposed to check raise about half the time and still call off. So this is a tournament. It was a pretty special tournament. There were a lot of recreational players left. So maybe there was um, an argument to be made for me keeping the pot smaller. Can you try to explain that in human terms? Like why? Because obviously it's counterintuitive. To, it was apparently it was counterintuitive to even you who play these super high rollers. So can you try to explain to like our listeners, like why would you um, check raise king 10 suited on queen 10 seven rainbow in this spot? I think the idea is it has quite a lot of equity versus the imposition players flop love shoves. And then specifically hands like Ace-King should be a huge chunk of the three-betting player's pre-flop range. And Ace-King, King-10 uh, King does quite well versus Ace-King because Ace-King only has seven outs. And Ace-King isn't necessarily a hand he'll keep bluffing with on the turn all that often. So by check-raising the flop with King-10, you're getting Ace-King to put in a lot of money otherwise might not put in. But I think what is tricky about this part is even even to me even after preparing for this podcast even after looking at it i don't fully get the logic of it there's plays like that that i understand and can implement if you look at enough solutions you'll be like oh they do some check raising here with middle pair they bluff from these kinds of hands they do this and that but to fully understand the logic is still quite hard and sometimes you kind of perfectly understand the logic sometimes it's pretty hazy and sometimes it's it's a pattern recognition thing where you're like i'm pretty sure that's the correct play or the play the computer prefers and i'm not 100 percent sure why but i'm more confident in it being something i recall being right than um that i'm willing to override the fact that i don't fully understand the logic at the moment Interesting. Fascinating. So for our listeners, many of them are at various levels of working with solvers. But I should point out to the audience that when you run a hand through a solver or a computer analysis, in this case, humans at this point have to actually input the various bet sizes. So that's like the human input. Now, in this case, um, when you ran this hand in a solver, what bet sizes did you give Martin, and is 40% one that should exist, or is it just the one one that he happened to choose? Um, I gave him 20%, 40%, and then maybe, I think a big one too, maybe 80% or 100% or, or something. And Martin checked 11% of the time and bet 20%, uh, 90% of the time. I mean, I, I didn't bother getting too deep into it if I made the bet size, but if I made the bet size, say, 15% instead of 20%, he probably starts betting more often. If I made it um, 25%, he starts betting a little less. The other thing you can look at if you're looking at solutions is if there are specific hands that do something pure. So if you have a solution where everything mixes, then if you make the bet size a little bigger or a little smaller, you'll probably just decrease or increase betting frequency. And if you make it a little bigger, you're just decreasing betting frequency. But if sometimes you look at a solution and you'll be like, oh, Ace-King always checks here. And that means there's, there's something different going on and it's important that you bucket your hands into different um, different sizes. But if you get a solution like this where it's just telling you to check and bet and pick one bet size, then if you increase the bet size or decrease the bet size, the global frequency will just change a little. Now you're you're checking a hundred percent of the time, right? As yeah. the out of position player. Okay. And obviously you have lots of tens in your reign. Like pocket tens is by far your most likely hand in this scenario. <laughs> like by far, right? 
I don't know if I'd full dice jack off to the three bet, but it's it's probably just combo wise needs to be an offsuit hand. I know I was kidding yeah. actually because of the because of what happened at the end, the table talk. Oh, I just got back from Australia, and jokes will be on me at this point. I'm too too, too tired for them. <laughs> sorry, sorry. The thing that happened at the end of the hand was that uh, Martin yeah. was mocking you and saying that you always had value there, and specifically that you always had pocket tens um, to make a full boat. That's one of the things I actually wanted to talk about this hand that I thought was interesting. I play a good amount on live stream over the course of the year, and some hands become, uh, the hand I busted the main event became popular and like non-focal circle. My Max, my brother's uh, father-in-law, like texted my parents about it. My dad's mechanic called him. And the aces in the main event make sense why it became so popular. Although it, it is funny, if I had king-queen in that hand or ace-queen in that hand, and if the equity-wide, the same bad beat. I don't think people care the same way. Just because, you know, people love pocket aces. But one thing I thought was interesting about this hand is it got popular because of Mauden's table talk at the end, where Mauden says, oh, you must have 10s. Show me a 10. You have a 10. And then I showed him my 110. And he gets all excited and goes, yes, pocket 10s. I knew it. And then he has some banter with Igor. As somebody who plays with Mauden a lot, like nothing Mauden says at the poker table ever is serious. He's always on some level of like trolling and sincerity and, you know, I don't know if I can sway over bullshitting. And I thought it was funny. Granted, in the moment, I was still pretty nervous from bluffing and getting it through. But in the moment, I definitely thought he was just messing around. And he was trying to, like, angle me into showing him his cards or, or whatever, even though he was going to see it half an hour later. But then everyone else who saw it, who didn't have that much familiarity with playing with Martin, was like, oh, he looked like such an idiot. He said, he really thought you had pocket 10s, unbelievable, da-da-da. He got so excited when you showed the 10. But, yeah, I, I to me, that never... I didn't feel the same way. It, it made for great TV, but... But knowing Mauden, he he's always doing kind of like bits and, and routines like that. Like I played live with him for a full day where every single time he defended out of the big blind, he looked at the flop, took a second, and then announced he was checking dark. So <laughs> so like that's a, that's a, the kind of kind of guy he is. So I thought it was funny that everyone was so confident that I tricked him. Igor wanted to bet on him whether or not it was pocket tens and always obviously combo wise. Igor was trying to show like that it would be a bad bet to bet on tens, right? And then Martin said, "Like, um, do you think I'm an idiot, right?" Yeah, even if you know I have a ten, it's still like a, obviously betting on tens is pretty bad because I because I showed him one ten. But even if you know I have the ten, it's not a. That's interesting. Talk to us about that potential prop bet because actually. Honestly, when I saw the um, clip, I did not catch you showing him a 10. I thought that he was just guessing 10s out of thin air. That's why he got so excited, because yeah. I, I showed him 110. It's tough to say because, and this is, I guess, part of why I picked this hand, where we can talk a little about the, the tone. When I looked at the tone, Mauden bets the tone like not close to 90% of the time. Well, when he bets small on the flop, he bets the tone 90% of the time. When he bet the size he chose on the flop, the 38%, he still bets the tone like 65% of the time, including betting king-queen close to 100% of the time in, in both situations, which, again, surprised me quite a lot. I would have guessed that if you saw the... Well, I had the tennis fades, which matches the ace. So I guess I can't have ace-10 suited. So I guess it's actually pretty close then, because then I could have... The, the hands I would actually am supposed to be bluffing with, or the computer likes bluffing with, are Jack-10, 10-9, and 10-8, which I only have the suited combos of. I don't call offsuit. And then I added King-10 suited. But if he thought I might have... So it's actually probably pretty close to 50-50. But yeah. then, again, then again, I was bluffing King-10 suited, so that makes it four combos to three combos potentially. And I might have Ace-10 as the other one. I don't think I'd call Ace-10 off. I can't have Ace-10 suited because the Ace of Spades is on board. So, yeah, it should actually be a pretty uh, pretty close bet once I show a 10. 
that's what occurred to me that it's actually kind of an interesting bet. I mean, I'm not sure if you start check raising your pocket tens on the flop. So maybe that's what Igor was thinking about too. That I mean, I assume Igor is a genius and like he did ran all this math before he started mocking Martin. I mean, Igor also (laughs) might have just in the, I I think it's a quick, if any time at a poker table, you can bet on somebody holding one specific hand versus the field. I think you should, taking the field is almost always a good bet. So that might be the other thing Eagle Eagle was doing at the time too. A good kind of heuristic that if you get to have a field, just take the field and then worry about crunching the math later. That's probably a good bet in like almost anything unless you start getting to, uh, you know, like something like tennis or, or chess or, or whatever you might want to take, uh, like the best flight or versus the field. But, but as a general rule, taking the field versus one specific outcome is pretty good. Yeah, and just to, to kind of explain what we're talking about in case somebody didn't follow, at the river, Igor was asking if he could bet on Martin whether Sam held pocket tens. Martin would get the tens, Igor would get the field. Martin declined and, you know, they joked around a little bit about it. As he said, do you think I'm stupid? And Igor said, yes, as a joke, of course. And that kind of added a lot of levity into the situation. But um, I'm, I'm fascinated still to go back to the turn as, you talk about this um, solver solution that actually bets 65% of the time, including almost king-queen at 100% frequency, which I think intuitively from a human point of view might be one of the top choices to check back. Now the flop again is 10-queen-7, ace on the turn, and you um, said the solver bets almost all the time after a 20% bet on the flop, but even after a 40% bet, still bets that 65% range. So if they're not including king-queen in the checking range, what types of hands is the solver checking with on the turn? Kings, jacks, some worse tens, some uh, high equity draws, if you have them, like uh, king-eight suited with a flush draw, some jack-nine suited, I think, checks a lot. Nine-eight suited might check uh, a good amount as well. I think when I dug into this, what I basically found is the imposition player on the ace turn has such a big equity advantage where when they bet 20 on the flop, Martin bets 20% on the flop. He still has, he has, his global turn equity is around 70%. When he bets 38% on the flop, his global turn equity is around 65%. It drops because I foiled some of my um, weaker defense as he, as he sizes up. But I think the idea is just one he has a huge range advantage two and i get this kind of gets back to the the flop check raise there's a class of hands i have like queen jack like jack 10 with any hand that turned a flush draw that put in money versus a tone bet but aren't necessarily putting in money versus whoever bet so if you have a hand like king queen if it goes check which as as like we found out what happens here if it goes check check on the um turn on almost any level you have a kind of dicey bluff catcher but if you block the turn if you just bet like quarter part on the turn in position then a hand like mine is just forced to call one bet put in some money so i'm forced to put a money on the turn and i can't bluff him on the level so it's a pretty good uh pretty good combo and then if you do have king queen and you improve either straight or um or trips Two pay, if you improve to two pay, you would just check it back. But if you improve, then you have the ability to bet in position. So again, this this kind of tied back to that that Twitter thread I made about a hand that Stevie and Christoph played in um, the British Poker Open 250k. The whole hand I played was Mountain Hill. I'm trying to play kind of the best solvable poker I can play. And then we're kind of immediately in a non-computer poker hand. Martin misses his small flop C-bet. I miss my flop raise. Martin misses his turn bet. I play the turn fine because I don't have an option. So I think this is when people talk about poker being robotic, they don't realize how often you're like off the correct tree. And how often you need to intuit what's going on or, or guess what's going on or make a mistake and correct for it later or, or all of that. Right. Or use the things that you've learned from studying theory and kind of like implant them on the new ranges. Yeah. I mean, even from a, a starting point here, Mauden is a 
he plays a lot of folk. He's a smart guy, but I'm sure his pre-flop range is off a little. I saw, because we had people uh, reporting the holocaust for the million from day one, so I got to see what some hands that showed down on day one of this tournament on the street on the live stream and Mauden had a couple of loose loose three bets that were probably hands that should have just called a folded preflop. So Mauden in this spot he might have more probably get the river with more bad top pair because he might bluff too many suited aces preflop. He might have King Queen off too much. He might have Queen Jack off too much. When I ran this hand to PO I didn't create a Mauden specific Preflop range. I just did like a generic preflop range that I that I have. So everything I'm saying here about the what my response is supposed to be and what the solution is is all from the jump. It's kind of kind of garbage. Garbage is too strong, but it's not. It doesn't have the precision that I've been talking about it with because you have from the first decision you have the wrong range for Mountain. And that can change so many things. And, you know, looking at even the turn situation where you um, have Martin checking back the turn that the solver says is a bet, you wonder if part of that is both intuition and analysis that you might be under bluffing the river. I mean, of course, you did bluff with the King-10 suited. But if those hands are not getting bluffed, does that strengthen the um, turn check? This is actually a river spot where I don't think it matters too much. I think basically Mauden has will have some collection of let's say kings, let's say one pair of aces and like king queen or queen jack type hands, and all those hands should be pretty close to indifferent facing a bet, I would imagine. So it just becomes kind of a, a frequency game for Mauden on the river that it doesn't matter all that much what hands he chooses to call with, just that he isn't overfolding and. If he does something like, oh, every time he gets to the river with ace two suited, he calls, but he never calls king queen and never calls kings, then he's probably, or, you know, let's say combo why that wouldn't be enough, but, you know, like ace two suited through like ace six suited, then he's probably just doing fine. I, I don't think in practice, for most people, all that matters is that you're calling close to the right amount and they don't start over bluffing you. Because if you think someone's over calling with a specific type of hand then like i need to go start making pretty specific exploits and start over bluffing with specific combos and giving up with some other combos but like here i don't think it mattered that much because he should have enough like one pair of aces hands that are just kind of like perfect neutral bluff catchers and then on the river you have um, an interesting decision point at what point did you decide that you were going to bluff and you mentioned being nervous, so how did you cope with that as you put out this this big sizing? I think you said 700,000 into 800,000. Well, I so on the river we had, I think, 1.15 uh, to play into 800,000, and I actually thought I was making a mistake here, which was part of the reason I was nervous. I thought this would be a spot where my value betting range would kind of look like um, so the seven, which was the bottom card on the flop, paired on the on the river, and I kind of thought it would be trips, uh, king jack. So trips straight and full houses would be kind of the majority of my river betting range, and then maybe some ace queen and ace ten in there too. I wasn't too confident that I could even value bet ace jack because the once the seven pair is the kicker doesn't play. I, I thought I could bet ace jack for you know maybe into eight hundred thousand, maybe like. 200,000 or 250,000 or something. So I was kind of confident. I thought I'd be all in or with most of my value betting range. I, I thought if I had like a seven, I could just go all in. Or if I had a full house or, or a straight, I could just go all in. Because we only had like maybe 140% to play. So that was, I think, part of the reason I was nervous. In my head, I really thought it was an all in swap. But for whatever reason, I I thought maybe I wanted to preserve my tournament life. I think it was a little early in the day and I wasn't fully zoned in. But for whatever reason, I talked myself out of going all in, which was my first instinct. Now that I look it up, turns out all, uh, like betting 80%-ish was in the correct play and I, I did good. But yeah, I, I really thought all in was the right play. And I felt super nervous when I didn't bet all in because it felt like the wrong play. And then in addition to that, if I know, so all these tournaments are shot clock tournaments. So if I know, I, I think I use a time bank too. So that's the other thing that's weird. When you use a time bank, sometimes you 
feel less comfortable bluffing because it doesn't look as credible, especially in this case where you said I bet big, but I, I think I bet a pretty normal size, like 80% pot. So using a time bank and then betting 80% pot feels weird. If you use a time bank and bet all in, then your opponent goes, oh, he was just thinking about, you know, how big he wanted to bet. All in's kind of an unusual size here. It's it's pretty big. It's a big tournament. But if you use a time bank and then bet two-thirds par to 80% par, then I think sometimes you might be concerned that it looks like what you were thinking about is should I bluff this hand or not. Interesting. Okay, because you're you're thinking that that's you're, if you're picking a standard size, then there's less thought about the bet size and more about should I bluff, huh? Then uh, back to being nervous for a second. I feel the times I'm most nervous playing live poker. Sometimes it just has to do with you know the day. It's an anxious day, or, or things aren't going well, or you're running bad, and you're like, I don't want to get all in right now. But a lot of times it is because I don't know what to do, and. In a shot clock tournament, if they announce, if I look at the clock and there's 20 seconds left and I know I'm going all in, then I'm usually fine. But if it's a shot clock tournament and with eight seconds left, I don't really, I still am not too comfortable about what to do. Then that's often when I start getting nervous. Fortunately, sometimes that happens when I have good hands too. I don't, I don't know what the best line with a good hand is, so it can naturally balance out a little and. Also, I'll tell you, when I watched the video last night before, which I think was the first time I watched it since uh, since it happened, I thought I was pretty calm and, like, locked it. You know, I have the best reads on myself, I think, sometimes. But if you're watching footage of yourself, I know what I look like when I'm nervous. And I thought I kept it together pretty well. Wow, there's a lot of great advice kind of, like, embedded in what you just said. But I think one thing for our listeners that's really valuable is this idea that if you're focused on the quality of your decisions, then it's not going to be as easy for your opponents to read you. Because even when you're nervous, you're nervous about whether or not your play is correct, you know, based on, you know, both like the salver output, but also tweaked with the exploitative analysis. You're kind of worried that you're underprepared. So that could be a value bet or a bluff. So you're not really giving anything away. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's such a useful way to think about poker like that. I mean, for many reasons, but um, <laughs> being unreadable, being another one. Uh, so you made this bet, and then um, he thought for a while, talked to you during the hand, right? He did talk to you during the hand. I'm not remembering that incorrectly. I think he talked a little during the hand, but he all, he folded pretty quickly. I don't even think he used a time bank. So that was part of the other thing with the banter after the hand. I thought I could have got him to fold the best hand because I had a hand that, you know, wasn't that good. But I didn't think I got him to make a particularly big fold because I don't even think he used a time bank. But I did think he, yeah, he did talk a little, or in, at least in my memory he does. But he's the type of guy who I think almost always talks on the on the river when, when facing a bet. Did you feel like, in general, he thought you were under bluffing that spot? I'm not so sure. I think... He probably just correctly identified his hand isn't very good. He correctly identified he didn't have that great a bluff catcher. It's, you know, a big tournament for super high stakes. I don't think he necessarily thought, like, I was under bluffing it because he's also a pretty creative player and he can find tricky bluffs like that. But it's possible he was used to playing in games where people wouldn't find a bluff like that. So he his default is to be like, okay, well... People don't really bluff you. But but I think he gives me credit to bluff you. After you won this hand, like, did you feel really great? I mean, I know obviously you play lots of online. You've played so many tournaments. You've been a pro for so many years. But still, like, bluffing, turning a pair into a bluff in such a huge tournament, does it still have, like, any kind of, like, special thrill for you? Yeah. I think this was a pretty special tournament, probably kind of a one-of-a-kind tournament, and especially because when they've had the million-dollar tournaments in the U.S., I've been unable to play them because of tax reasons for Canadians. I, you know, kind of came into the tournament wanting to give my best performance possible, and I had another hand on day one versus uh, Nick Petrangelo, where I got to make a pretty big fold of queens. It was nice for such a high-profile tournament to kind of play my best and make some well, at least play hands that looked good on TV, because when I actually looked this up, I was pretty off on what my, uh, not too far off, but kind of off, strategy was supposed to be. 
But within like a super big tournament like this, it's nice to have a hand that um that kind of is memorable and got people talking. Of course, the other thing was since it was such a special tournament and since they had so many business people, I was taking a really big piece of myself. So <laughs> there was also that that element of it too, where I'm like, okay, I didn't just torch whatever presented myself I had in, in this one hand. That was that was the other thing that was nice. Yeah, you're you're gambling more than usual because of the unique circumstances. Wow. Yeah. That's great. So talk about the kind of iconic nature of this hand. Like for me, this seems like a hand that would be perfect for people with limited time to study because it's queen to in seven rainbow, low jack versus in position, three bet pot, something where you might not feel super comfortable with it. So if you study this with the solver in advance, stuff like this is likely to come up, right? It's tough because when I um, when I choose to like play poker and study hands based on what I'm um, based on like trouble hands I had, then you end up picking a lot of pots with the blinds because those are just going to be the most common pots you play a lot. Single raise pots with the big blind are you know the most common pots you play with almost any position. So yeah, the, these pots are tricky because yeah for all the reasons you said it's a connected board and it's a connected board that like that hits um that hits both ranges a lot in the three bet pot early mid voice cutoff early position voice early position three bet pots are like quite tricky spots because ranges are so tight the other thing that's nice about this from a practical standpoint when you do you know low jack voice cutoff three bet pot is both of the ranges should be pretty tight they'll um the PO will come to a solution a little quicker. The tree isn't as big because you get all in pretty quickly. You only have, what in this case you had, we had like 4x, oh no, that's like 3x spot to play on the flop. And, and ranges are pretty tight too. So that's a fun thing about studying this kind of spot. Interesting. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well, that it could be a little easier for the human to internalize if the ranges are a little smaller so that you don't have as much to kind of really take in. Yeah, for sure. And also, every hand is kind of like a good hand, for lack of a better word, where if you're doing like blind versus blind solutions, you need to figure out what to do when you decided to like raise jack two off over a limp. That's a pretty tricky thing to figure out, where if here, worst case scenario, every hand either person has, has like something, more or less. It seems to me that if you're studying with solvers and you study too much of one thing, it could be uh especially if you're just starting out and you're not playing super high rollers that it could distort your understanding of the game like suppose you had a student and they were studying like almost exclusively what you were saying before you know button versus big blind or hijack versus big blind the range is being so much wider it might give them like a skewed sense in different types of pots there was a period of time definitely where heads up specialists were playing super high rollers and this was an I guess the early days of solvers or maybe when guys were using a lot of um, Card Runners EV and Starts EV. And you could tell they had all these great poker, incredible intuitive understanding of heads-up poker, but they would, it just involved them making stupid loose plays and in-wing poker. So they'd be like, oh, I get that you're supposed to like check-raise here a lot with a backdoor flush draw. Something like maybe uh, Queen Four Nine Rainbow. They're like, oh, six five with the backdoor flush draw is a good hand to check raise here. And it's like, yeah, that is a good hand with maybe a button raise or heads up where you you're happy with your three straight and a backdoor flush draw and over cards to the four, <laughs> which matter a lot. And and heads up, your opponent might have a decent amount of pair of fours, but when you're facing like a low jack range where the guy doesn't have a pair of fours. Or like his bluffs or, you know, like pocket threes or uh, ace two or something like that, then suddenly, yeah, suddenly th those sorts of check raises don't go well. And e even I feel this too sometimes. There's an ego thing where you learn a new solver trick and then people are too excited to like find a spot to use it in game and then they just end up playing foul too loose and, and they'll mix us off. Oh, that's funny. You see something and you're just excited to implement it, so you misimplement it. Just to add on one thing, there's plays that are supposed to be made 5% of the time, and it's good that you have an understanding of this tricky 5% play, 
but that means you still need to do it 5% of the time. Like showing off that you know that this, you occasionally shove heel 5% of the time is not, isn't good. Isn't good unless you do it 5% of the time. Otherwise you're just bluffing way too much. Right. So that's something you, if you see a fun and exciting play, you should really keep in, in consideration the frequencies. So I wanted to just quote in full this, one of your tweets from this uh, discussion we mentioned earlier. You wrote on Twitter at Sam Greenwood Rio that if you find the aesthetics of super high roller poker to be boring, that's fine. But the idea that the play is robotic or boring is insane to me. I've been playing poker for 15 years and it's never been played at a higher level. So higher level, sure. But it seemed like in this tweet, you also were implying that it's more aesthetic or interesting or beautiful. Is that what you were getting at? I think it is. I think there's some people who what they want out of poker is they want, like when Rob had his cash games on uh, Poco Go, they had all sorts of crazy giant pots. And they're super fun to watch because you're watching so much money get put in the pot with like bad hands and people not really knowing what they're doing. So you're just seeing these these massive pots get generated where people have bad hands and like there were times in those hands where somebody, you know, like should have just folded pre-flop and then the hand's over and then instead you get this 500k pot. So that's super exciting and super fun to watch. Another example is Bobby Blonde had a hand where I think he 5-bet shoved 5-3 suited in a cash game in, in Jeju that was pretty popular and the Chinese guy just said ace-king, uh, Lang Yu. And that sort of poker i think is super entertaining and fun if that's your performer poker i have no problem with that but what bothers me is that in order to boost that kind of fun amateur crazy loose poker people need to kick the high level poker that they see by being like oh all these guys do is you know like copy these strategies or they just um they just see that quarter pot every time, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's what bothers me more because as somebody who's looked at a lot of solutions and has studied, I kind of realize how tricky and elegant and frankly kind of crazy computer poker can be. And even using this hand, like I would have never bet King Queen on the turn as, as modern. I would have, don't think I would have ever raised my hand on the flop. I would have thought, guessed that if I was raising tens on the flop, they were more likely to be bluffs than reluctant raise calls. So I think that's what that's what upsets me about it, that I do think poker is being played at a super high level. I do think it's fun and interesting to watch. I know people have issues with the other elements like the pace of play, which is fair. I mean, when, I, when you're in a poker hand, time kind of slows down and it doesn't seem like you're taking a long time. But when you're watching somebody else play poker, like one second feels like an eternity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Even when I'm watching streams, I'm just like, like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I 100% get it. But when you're sitting there and you're like, hey, this is far where I'm supposed to, you know, like me on the river here. I'm like, this is, am I supposed to bluff this hand? If I'm supposed to bluff this hand, I'm supposed to bet. Obviously, I can't block. Block would just get called by better hands. Am I supposed to bet? go all in, I only have this much to play, it's a tournament, should I leave myself a little back? All those sorts of thoughts are racing through your head, and you need to make your decision kind of quick. Like, to you, 30 seconds is never enough in those spots, but to everyone else, it's an eternity. I mean, obviously, I agree with you. I mean, that's part of the concept of this uh, this podcast, the kind of, like, art of the theory. But I think that one of the reasons, coming from a chess background, this kind of solver... Um, era of poker is so fascinating to me is it reminds me of this feeling that you often have in chess, which is that the solution or the answers are very difficult, but they're within human grasp. And that's very tantalizing that it's like, you can almost understand it, but it's certainly not easy. I agree. And like, I just remember they were like poker hands in, you know, 2008, that were like six month conversations. That like, every, you know, that every time you ran into somebody, you would be like, oh, what did you think of this hand, da, 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 and there these big philosophical arguments about it. And now you're just like, oh, I uh, ran it overnight and it's set to go all in, the end. And as somebody who kind of likes having a bit of structure in their life, the fact that I can like look at a hand and be like, okay, I played this well, that's good. Especially if you're on a downswing, where you can just look at a hand and be like, okay, I played it well, 
this happens, I'm fine. I think I think it's been very um, like psychologically helpful. I think it's a lot about this personality. People who think of poker more as something as guessing better than their opponents because they're really good with people and people skills and reading might be scary for them, like the solver era, because their skills are not being as privileged as they were before, or at least that's what they perceive. In reality, as you point out, in game, um, a lot of those skills are still going to come to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I don't want to name specific names on either side here, but I have so many conversations with people who play super high rollers where they tell me a hand and they're like i know i'm supposed to call here but i don't think this guy's bluffing here and not talking about recreational players talking about professional players or you know not bluffing enough and i think this assumption that i mean this goes back to the long conversation about super high rollers where there was this idea that all the pros are breaking even and they're just chopping up the money of the businessmen I mean, I can speak for myself here. Like, I want to be the best of the pros in all of these tournaments. And if I felt, if there were, like, 20 pros and 10 businessmen, and I felt I was the 18th best pro in the tournament, I probably wouldn't be regularly playing them. I think this is all of a piece where you want to solve poker is, you know, using solver solutions is too well to help you study and help you understand poker better. So, well. Uh, live read so uh bet sizing tells kind of like strategic tells of just like oh i noticed this guy never check raises and since you know he never check raises i'm going to just start betting a lot more all these things will have a piece and the idea that um that the top player is oblivious to that kind of you know live reads or bayesian tells or whatever is just kind of crazy to me i have a question from a fellow grid guest and an audience member Femi Fashikin, the winner of the Big 50, he asks you, how do you improve optimal decision-making with additional time clock pressure? So is there a way that you prepare for tournaments like super high rollers with a shot clock that differs from your general, you know, Pio study? At this point, 80, 90% of the live poker I play is uh, shot clock poker. And what I said like years ago about shot clock poker was, the players that benefit the most are the players who have played with it most often. And that's kind of what I feel now, where even now when I'm playing main events, there was just a 30-second clock in my head. I'm like, when I'm in pots with other people, I'm like, shouldn't you have been taking a time chip now? Or isn't the dealer going to bother me soon? So your natural rhythms change quite a bit, and you get used to making decisions within 30 seconds. One of the things is in chess, we've got like a 30-second increment a lot, or a 30-second delay sometimes. And it's interesting, because the last thing you want to do is waste significant portion of the 30 seconds worrying about whether the 30 seconds are up or not. Yeah, I, I think the, the other thing I got better at is if you look in most tournaments, most people end up busting or winning the tournament with extra time chips. So I've become more aggress aggressive in using them. If, you know, it's a long day, I mess up counting the pot size or whatever. I'm just like, okay, that's fine. Just use the, short, use the time chip. It's okay. You probably won't need this later. And if you do, it's a good problem to have usually. What about for somebody who doesn't normally play time clock um, tournaments and it has to play one that's maybe even a bigger buy-in than they're used to? Do you have any tips for them to actually like prepare for that experience so that they don't lose on time, as we would say in chess, or just make weaker decisions and get really nervous? I guess my advice would be don't play with music or, or anything that could distract you these are things that matter for me me personally but i know there's some people who, who might not be counting the pot size or whatever but if you there's anything you're doing you regularly do in a hand like whether it's count the pot size or, or whatever try to do it on the previous straight i have kind of obsessive compulsive tendencies where i don't like rounding but it doesn't matter if you if the pot is eight hundred thousand or eight hundred and like twenty five thousand. Oh, the other thing I would my other advice is thirty seconds. It's a lot longer than you think. So if they say ten seconds, ten seconds is a lot. Like even right now, if you do you know start ten seconds and we were to go silent, Jen and I, it would seem like an eternity. Did you 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 would check to see if your uh, your phone had turned off or, or your computer browser had crashed or whatever. The other advice is, I would say, is get comfortable, if necessary, verbalizing bet sizes if you don't normally do that. Oh, get comfortable doing it because that way, if you run out of time. 
yeah, if the clock's running down, you can just blow it out, you know, 700,000 or whatever. And then the other person's clock doesn't start until the chips are physically in the middle. Yeah. So that actually kind of like elongates the whole process kind of significantly, probably. Oh, oh, and another one that I don't do, but other people might do, and people might get mad at me for this, but you can also like take the full 30 seconds out of position if you know you're like auto-checking if if you need to calculate the pot size or, or something like that. I think that's big picture, bad for pace of play and bad for like the game. But if it's your first time playing a shot clock tournament and it's a high buy-in tournament for you, like do whatever you want. If it's like a huge tournament for you, you don't owe anything to the game, I don't think. You just owe it to yourself to try your hardest and play your best. So you're saying like if you're not aware of exactly how much is in the pot so you, and you're going to check, you want to know what percentage your opponent is betting. So you kind of do that math before you check. Yeah. Or even if you're like, well... He's probably going in like a river spot. If you're like, well, he's probably going to go all in who check here. His, his most likely bet size is all in. I don't know what I'm going to do versus shove. So maybe I'll take the full 30 seconds. Those are great tips. Yeah, they're, they're really useful. One quick question about another passion of yours. You used to write a lot of reviews of movies you watched. So I have to ask, what movie would you like to see made about poker that hasn't already been made? Most poker movies need to use poker as a metaphor for something else. It's always about like poker as like a, you know, metaphor for like courage or putting it on the line or individuality or something else. But to me, it's poker is poker. I mean, chess is actually the worst offender for this. So many movies like, you know, like Bond movies, they show the two people playing chess as like a metaphor for like the future mano y mano uh, conflict. And I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about chess, but... So many of them are, are technical and lots of them have to do with like chess as a metaphor for life type stuff. As a chess player, I do like to see the chess getting in there in the movies, but sometimes the metaphor does seem a little bit overwrought. Yeah. Speaking of which, intelligence, this is another question I had on my list. Is natural intelligence or a high IQ important to be really good at poker at like the super high roller level? Because before there was all these different skills that made a great poker player, but now as it becomes more analytical, is it actually really important to be very smart? And I know that you have a family full of poker players. So what can you say about that? This is kind of a tricky one for me because I have kind of a lot of wrapped up thoughts about intelligence in, in the first place. I do think now it's catering more towards a specific kind of like analytical type of intelligence. But I think the people before who were successful at poker, or even now a whole lot of people who are successful at poker who naturally and intuitively quite smart and just not as good at um, sort of like solvery type solutions of folk who don't make intuitive sense to them and don't. I guess the way I put it is right now, for better or worse, the nature of solver poker is that there are computer solutions that can be found. And because there can are computer solutions that can be found, any skill to being a great poker player now is going to be interpreting and applying those solutions. So I think a more analytical mind is is better at that. that. But I think that's a different form of intelligence than the intelligence that used to make a great poker player. Great answer. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. There's many different types of intelligences and perhaps poker is privileging one more than um, others right now. One quick tangential rant about that bothers me a lot when people look at sort of amateur poker players and look at type of plays they make and they go oh this guy's stupid or any sort of negative insulting comment because the reality is like yeah he doesn't know what to do with pocket sevens here because either his mindset doesn't sync up well with poker or he hasn't worked or tried at it and just because they don't know what to do with you know pocket eights when facing a raise doesn't make them stupid I, yeah, well, completely in agreement with that. There's also not only intelligence, but there's a lot of relationship with money that ties into poker skill that is all over the map as well. And that can make people that can just be so hard to unravel, almost require like therapy to unravel as you know, people risk aversion, loss aversion ties into it as well as your intelligence. Yeah, or, or risk loving or, or loss. Because I have friends who I just saw them play like played like home games with them in high school and then saw them play blackjack or whatever in Vegas. I'm like, this person should not gamble, period. They don't have the 
the mindset or the stomach or, or whatever for it. Yeah, absolutely. So one final question, most overrated and underrated ways to get better at poker, since of course, you are a renowned coach. I think overrated is people spending too much time at the margins trying to get as good as possible and underrated is trying to underrated is picking kind of like the most common easiest spots and, and mastering it. We talked about the pitfalls of this earlier, but I think most people would be better off mostly focusing on like single raised pots, getting the preflop ranges down, and then yeah, when they face a three or four bet pot, they might be a little rusty, they might not be as good, but those pots come up less often. I think that's that would be my advice, I guess. Well, one thing to um, just add on this, if your flop strategies are solid, if your preflop and flop strategies are very good, they'll set you up very well to play on the turn and the river. Right. So just kind of just simple stuff, like study the stuff that happens the most often, which is preflop and flop, if you are limited in time for studying. Yeah. All right. Makes makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah. Thanks so much, Sam. This was a fantastic conversation. I mean, it's been so great. And um, you can, of course, follow Sam at Sam Greenwood Rio, of course, so you can follow him in the high roller circuit. And we expect and hope uh, for lots more uh, wins from you, Sam. Thank you. Uh, I I hope uh, I win more too. Thanks again, Sam Greenwood, King 10 suited. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust They say I'm lucky Oh no, no need to bluff With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent